Welcome to Millennium Live, the official podcast of the Millennium Alliance. Join us for a conversation of life, leadership, and how today's top leaders are digitally transforming the enterprise. Happy Monday, everybody. Got a great episode for the Millennium Alliance podcast series this week. Like with all great keynotes and just all great people that we come across within our network, I specifically love to get a chance to talk to them and go in depth on a couple different topics that are not only relevant for for them, but obviously relevant for all of you. Today, we have Stuart McGuigan. For those you don't know, he was the CIO for the U.S. Department of State most recently, up until I believe 2021, a member of the Senior Executive Service and the Assistant Secretary Level Head of the Bureau of Information Resource Management. As CIO, he established technology, strategic direction, and provided oversight for $2.4 billion of technology programs across the Department of State. Stewart joined the Department of State from his role at Johnson Johnson, where he was the CIO responsible for global information technology strategy and operations for an organization, which at the time had 130,000 employees. 170 overseas and domestic locations with an established reputation for rapidly aligning technology innovation with global business needs. He brings over 33 years of industry background, including experience as senior vice president and CIO of CBS Caremark, CIO at Liberty Mutual, and the SVP of Information Services for Medco Health Solutions. Stewart earned a Master of Science and Master of Philosophy degrees in the Cognitive Science Program at Yale and a BA in Psychology from Fairfield over in Connecticut, which we're going to talk about. And in 2018, uh, he was inducted into CIO.com CIO Hall of Fame, and he is the recipient of the Lifetime Contribution Award from NASCOM, which is, for those of you who do not know, India's top not-for-profit IT organization, enabling India's growth of its $154 billion IT BPM industry. So that's a lot that I rolled off there. We're going to get into a lot of it. As with every interview I like to do, we're going to talk with Stuart about his early years pre-university and get into that. And then we're going to get into some of the roles. And then as I know a lot of you are going to want to hear, we're going to get into some of the big topics of the day revolving, you know, IT and IT security specifically and how it's impacting the federal government. But with no further ado, Mr. McWiggin, it's great to have you. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thrilled to be here, Alex. I'd like to open up just to have you inform our listeners is a little bit more about you personally, where you grew up, I think is always a good start. What kind of family dynamic um, you were exposed to when you were young? Did you have a traditional upbringing in regards to mother, father, dad working? What did they do? Siblings, what it was like for you as an adolescent? What kind of things were you into? And we can kind of we can kind of take it from there once we get the kind of the the foundation of your life started. That sounds great. I grew up in Southern Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in a family that was like a a lot of other families in the area. Both my parents were the first generation to go to college. My father went to Johns Hopkins and then Harvard Business School and the GI Bill. So he was a good student. And my mother went to Wellesley. So she was a pretty smart person as well. And my two brothers went to Harvard and my sister went to Wellesley and my uncle went to Harvard. My aunt went to Wellesley. And so I, of course, uh, refused to go to college at all. And, and I think knowing that, uh, you know, as the oldest but uh, most rebellious kid, uh, it's not necessarily a happy path, but it had played a large role in, you know, forming my character. And if I look back, I couldn't have told you at the time, being just an angsty, confused teenager. But what's really important to me is is understanding the purpose behind what i'm doing and very often i couldn't understand you know why i was doing things in a conventional way you know why school is the way it was uh and so i rebelled uh i tried to drop out of high school i failed at that because i had too many credits and so they graduated me anyway and i went into the workforce were you considered a good student in high school did it have anything to do with the fact that you were struggling I was a good student until I stopped going because it, I just didn't like the path. Uh, I saw how hard my father worked, and uh, the sort of mantra in my family was, if you think this is hard, wait till the next stage. And if you think college, which is college, if you think college is hard, wait till you work and then look at your father. And I thought, that's a train I don't want to get on. I mean, that doesn't seem like uh, a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to do it. And at the time, uh, I was a pretty serious uh, musician, 
studying trumpet and that that was a path that I was looking at, but I wasn't sure about that that either. And at least until I was twenty, I was thinking I might be a professional trumpet player. But I'm saying all that because you know, even at an early stage, I spent a lot of time evaluating what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how does the system work, do I agree with its principles, uh, and in an early day, really, really, really struggle with that. Uh, ultimately, I found out that if you just have a high school degree and you're working, uh, the opportunities are more limited, uh, obvious. Uh, so I went to school at night, mostly because I was interested in studying various things from Shakespeare to art to science, whatever. And then I had enough credits that uh, Fairfield University eventually said, you know what, you can't keep going unless you matriculate and pursue a degree. And I said, okay. And so I did. And then I really caught fire learning about cognitive psychology, looking at human beings and how they process information and what we call intelligence. And they were the only, humans are the only working model or were at the time that exhibited intelligence. And so if you want to understand in a systematic way how intelligence is manifested and how you might create it in computer systems, you study people. And so that's why I eventually went to uh, the cognitive science program at Yale, which was a interdisciplinary program, mostly computer science, cognitive psychology, a little bit of linguistics, mathematics, with the goal of doing things like natural language understanding, uh, representing complex ideas in cognitive systems. Uh, and then I had a lot of fun doing that until we ran into the uh, last AI winter and things dried up a bit. Would you say that you were anti-school at some point because you thought that it was going to lead you down the same road of whether it be your dad or a lot of the people that you were surrounded by? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it just, it was a lot of work and I wasn't sure I was aligned with the purpose. Uh, I, w I certainly wasn't financially driven and I really was until I had a family. Then, it, then it's a good thing to do to help take care of the, the family yeah. that way. But, uh, you know, I, I just, I was obsessed with why am I doing this? There often aren't good explanations for conventional wisdom and conventional paths. And so um, I didn't pursue them. So at Fairfield, how did you know that you wanted to focus on psychology? Or you had enough intuition to know that out of everything you could have picked, that was the thing that kind of was getting the motor going? Yeah, I, I liked everything. And luckily, Fairfield, being a good Jesuit school, had the broadest requirements of any school. I think out of the 40 courses you had to take to graduate, only two were free electives. So you had to take history, how to take philosophy, how to take religion. And, and that was great for me because one of my problems is I'm interested in too many different things. And that actually turns out to be an important theme in becoming a, a, a CIO. And so uh, I enrolled in a variety of courses, including Intro to Cognitive Psychology. And I had a wonderful professor named Betsy Gardner who had gotten her PhD from McGill and she had studied laterality of hemispheric functioning, the right brain, left brain, and all those kinds of things, which was really cool at the time. And her enthusiasm and her intellectual level and her support really got me aligned to doing cognitive and experimental psychology. And that introduced me to statistics and modeling and, and simulation, which again, uh, later turned out to be critical skills for me to actually get a job and have someone pay me to do stuff. So that's where the idea to go to Yale and to pursue this further came from. Was it inspired by this particular professor? Yeah, she essentially said, you have to go to graduate school. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm putting myself through college. That's part of being stubborn is that you end up on your own. Um, I'm not sure I can afford graduate school. And she said, no, 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 the graduate schools you go to, you'll get a full fellowship. And matter of fact, they'll pay you a small stipend um, so you can live while you study. And that sounded about as good as life could get. I was fortunate to get into a number of schools, but Yale had the biggest, broadest program, uh, both in artificial intelligence and in cognitive psychology of any of the schools that I looked at, and uh, really uh, was a tremendous program. So when you, and, and the Yale program was for how long? Four years. Four That's years. Got, and did you live in New Haven? 
I did. I did. Yeah, yeah a variety of graduate school, graduate student type homes with other graduate students. Uh, that was fun too because you got to meet people with, who were math majors, who were sociology majors, etc. And actually introduced me to something that was a passion for me for quite a while, which was uh, very traditional Taekwondo. One of the students was a uh-huh. teacher. And so I got to first degree black belt, uh, you know, eventually and, and studied it on and off until through my 40s. Were you ever a fan of the Karate Kid? I, I liked it. it. It wasn't entirely plausible, yeah. but, uh, you know, who's, who, who doesn't love that movie? But I really love Bruce Lee movies. When I was- ah, okay. The reason I ask about Karate Kid is because I love the Karate Kid, and they've made a spinoff on Netflix, Cobra Kai. I didn't know if you would have seen it. it, it I, haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Um, you know, I should watch it. For as corny as it is, it's not, it's, it's actually somewhat, if, if you're nostalgic of the movies, which I very much am, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm no way a martial artist, right? I'm lucky I can bend my arm back. Um, <laughs> but if you have any nostalgia for the 80s and, and those I, movies, they, they, did a, they did a pretty good job with the series, like as best as you could do it, bringing back characters, so I would say, you know, if, if you know, you need something to watch. When we get up to Rhode Island, we'll, uh, we'll put it on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I recommend it, especially if you're into karate. Um, so you get to Yale on day one. And generally what I find when I, when I talk to um, executives from any type of background, when they get to the graduate school level, they kind of, in their mind, it might be different when they leave, but they're, they, they know or they think that I'm here because I want this to happen when I leave. When you got there, were you hoping that by doing this, this was gonna to lead to something or were you just excited to be there for the information learning? Oh no, I always had a goal in mind, uh, but if I look over my career, I've changed my goals many times as I learned more about what it takes to be successful. So when I joined uh, the program, at Yale, I wanted to uh, invent a new area of science, however small or big. I wanted to bring together in a, in, in a stronger way, not just cognitive psychology and computer science, but I wanted to bring in uh, social psychology, attitude change and persuasion. And specifically, I wanted to study how does the way that people learn new information and the way they store information in memory and the way they process information affect uh, how they're persuaded. And I was very interested in, in politics and, uh, you know, Reagan was uh, president or running at the time. And he said, you know, don't, don't tell me the U.S. doesn't have a great economy. Look at this individual who just came from Mexico 15 years ago, you know, worked hard and now he runs three dry cleaning stores so don't tell me america doesn't have a great economy and i thought that's a terrible argument from an economist point of view because you know even in the weimar republic when everything's collapsing there's going to be some people who you can point to who are successful i thought so that must say something about how people process information based on their understanding and so i started doing all that different work but again remember i i'm not good at staying within the box and staying within systems so I created a research committee that included people from wildly different backgrounds, uh, leaders in their field, but um, very different social psychology, cognitive, computer science, uh, mathematics, memory, et cetera. And um, that was a great idea, except those people normally don't like each other. They don't agree with each other. And so getting them to agree on a dissertation topic and a method turned out to be a little bit more than I was able to handle in my 20s. And so uh, eventually I, I went into uh, into the corporate world, but more because I said, you know what, I, I, I'm not sure I love this research life. The, the joke about uh, academics being political, academia being political, it, it is true. Uh, I forget who said it, it was probably Mark Twain who said, the reason the politics in academia are so vicious is the stakes are so small. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it is a lot of truth to that, but really it was a naivete on my part, not really understanding uh, the organization. So uh, I, I went to Honeywell to do corporate uh, and aerospace and defense funded research. 
in expert systems, natural language, AI, human computer assisted instruction. Uh, we're looking at what we call then human factors, which is now design thinking. And for a couple of years, uh, learned a ton about leading edge practice in all those areas. And then I met my future wife and she was sort of interested in, in, in my having a career if we we're going to get married and raise a family. Sure. Um, and that's when I started looking around again, not knowing what, what opportunities were there, but thinking I, I, I had to be able to bring my skills to business in some way and, and probably marketing and market research. And so I was hired by Merck at the time, which had a small group of what we now call data scientists embedded in the commercial Group. So I wasn't in IT, I was in a business group. And we did things like uh, Monte Carlo simulations to be able to assess the research pipeline. We did logistic regressions to model out uh, what's the right pricing to bid a vaccine for a hospital system. And so it was sort of a heyday of using very advanced analytics, even expert systems, uh, and all sorts of you know, I'd say traditional multivariate statistical techniques to answer complex questions uh, for the company. And that's about as much fun as you can have and, and get paid and go to work. One day, uh, my boss came and visited me and told me that I wouldn't be doing all that fun stuff anymore, <laughs> which got my attention. And he essentially said, you know how you've been constructively criticizing or maybe even complaining about the quality of data that came out of our computer systems? that we can't get access to data and they're not creating the data we need. Well, sorry, guy, you're going to be in charge of creating an IT strategy to fix all that. And I'm quoting the gentleman. He said, sorry, guy, because <laughs> he knew I was getting into something very difficult. And it took me all of a three-day Memorial Day weekend to get over that I had to do this. But when I came back in, you know, I had a family and I'm a good corporate citizen. So I said, I'm going to figure this out and work really hard. Within a very short period of time, uh, working with the IT strategy group at Coopers and Library at the time, I figured out this is actually engineering. There's no reason that any company who can accurately specify what they want to be able to do from a business perspective can't have the data and systems capabilities to enable that. I mean, it's, it's just, it's math, it's deterministic. And so we developed Merck's first IT strategy uh, and then drove a lot of things that were sort of new at the time, which is integrated with the customer and, and some other things that we that uh, enabled the company to move ahead more quickly. And then, of course, you know, I, I fell in love with doing that, saw that as a huge unmet need. Uh, so I, you know, moved away mostly from analytics. I always kept a small statistical group to help the organizations with advanced analytics and to show the value of managing your data. But at that time, Merck bought a company called Medco. Uh, I was persuaded to go up there. It was a $6.6 billion acquisition, a large one at the time. And the company had $3 billion in revenue. Its net income was much, much, much smaller, low margin business. And I went up there literally on day one. And uh, I arrived. I hadn't met my boss yet. So I, I guess you can say I'm a little bit of a risk taker. And uh, I found out that I was in the IT group and I said, no, 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 I'm a business person. I'm going to work with IT, but I'm product development, I'm marketing, et cetera. And they said, no, 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 we want you to actually do stuff. So you've got to be in IT. Said, okay. And so for the next 10 years at Medco, I moved up uh, in various uh, areas of responsibility, some business, but mostly IT until uh, Merck decided to spin out the company, and it wasn't Kansas anymore, it's a great company, but different culture. And I thought, well, I've sort of involuntarily joined a new company because it was spun out. It wasn't Merck anymore. Why don't I think about what I want to do? And that's what eventually led me to become the CIO of Liberty Mutual. You mentioned something interesting, and it's, it's timely for me because you, you talked about how you were very much interested in how people process information and how information then persuades them. I very much like to keep up with current events and I'm, I'm interested in people also, which is yeah. one of the reasons I like talking to people like you. I love asking questions and kind of just understanding, you know, people have to make decisions and what, the, what were the choices they had when they made those decisions and how a, a, a person like you got, you know, to such a prominent place in your profession. 
So a lot of what I've been interested in over the years is whether you were for him or against him, the Trump phenomenon, because when you talk about information and you talk about persuading people, you know, that's, that's a, that's, that's a topic in America right now that we're fighting about every day. What information can we trust? And we need leaders, no matter what party they're from, or no matter what they do inside government to put out real information. And we need media to have some responsibility for that as well. And I, I just been recently the, the other day listening to someone who he was in a cult for many years. And he talked specifically about how systematic and how deliberate people can be without you realizing that you are being persuaded. And I just, it touched upon when you were talking about it, it touched upon a thing. I want to talk about this with you on the podcast because I think, and I can sense from you that you're not just a data guy. You're not just a tech geek. Um, no. And you, you probably have a lot of opinions on where we're at as a society because can't candidly Stuart, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit anxious about it. Right. Because I have seen personally very smart, highly successful in their field, doctors, lawyers, not just like, you know, run of the mill lawyers, but like legal professionals and all sorts of, uh, of people that are bright. And from what I can tell are taking information that is obviously false, you know, like the QAnon type stuff, the Pizzagate stuff, and they're running with it. And I am anxious as someone who loves politics and loves history about how we, how we move on from here when we're getting it from all sides, whether it be on social media 24 hours a day, whether it be on cable news 24 hours a day, and it's forcing everybody to go on to, to go to their sides. And to me, it just seems like, how are we going to get back ever to a point where you're not shunned for agreeing with someone? So there's a lot that I threw at you there, but this whole recent surge of what I consider just like crazy, almost biblical blind following, especially since January 6th. It's just stuff that, you know, I, I can't see how we get to a place where, where we get out of this. So I, I wanted to throw all that at you and just see if you could unpack some of that. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's certainly an area of concern. Uh, you know, I like the saying, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. Yeah. And that turns out not to be true, right? Uh, whether they're entitled or not, people do have their own sets of facts. And I, I was fortunate in serving in the last administration that I was in a, you know, an engineering job whose goal was to improve the execution capabilities of the Department of State. And I had the fortune to meet with the secretary early on in the process. And, and his goal was no matter who follows him, whether it's a liberal person or a conservative person, their ability to execute the diplomatic strategies of the United States will be enhanced because we're going to invest in infrastructure, which is, of course, what we did. So, I, you know, I got to stay out of that. You know, when I'm talking to my kids, especially, you know, who are in their late 20s and, and 30, uh, and their concern, I, I love referring them back to the campaigns of Thomas Jefferson and, and Adams. And if you read the newspapers there, the conspiracy theories, uh, the Jeffersonian newspapers, and he, he didn't admit that he was connected, but it was his party, uh, published articles saying that Adams was running a brothel in the White House. Um, <laughs> That, 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 you know, the underage people were involved, which kind of said, you know, that, that's still being used today. And so this idea that that up to this point, the information has been pristine and people have well-reasoned different opinions, it's just never been true. What I think has changed is there's no more back rooms. There's no more place where people can move away from the noise and all the, all the froth of these discussions and have quiet, bipartisan conversations to move the business of the United States forward. Now everything is out in the open. And I think that's that's one of the biggest changes. And so you have to start thinking about how do you use technology to reduce the variability in the sets of facts that people use. And it's a, it's a hard problem. 
we had a uh, IT conference at the Department of State, and uh, we're fortunate enough to have Andrew Ng, the you know, deep learning guru, a Stanford professor, uh, come talk about uh, things like deep fakes uh, and the yeah. ability to take images of you or me and our voices and put words in their mouth. They're, they're phenomenal. They are indistinguishable. And someone asked him, can we use technology to identify fakes? And he said, we're going to work on it, but he wasn't optimistic. So we're, we're going to be in a, in a world where we have to rethink the sources of authority and truth. Uh, the internet has been a free for all, right? And that's been its strength, its power, the source of innovation. But we have to think about is, is that the model going forward if it means that particularly perhaps other actors outside the United States can manipulate those environments and the tools that people use to run their lives and make decisions to the disadvantage of the United States of America. And if that's true, that's an assault on this country like any other assault. Uh, we're seeing the, you know, the cyber crimes uh, starting to increasingly proliferate because they're profitable. But we also know that a lot of the sources of fake news, quote unquote, uh, starts out outside the United States. Those actors are not interested in, in us advancing the American way, and it's just the opposite. So we have to figure out ways that we can create uh, communities of trust to get it back more into normal. It'll never be perfect. Uh, it's not designed to be perfect. Democracy isn't designed to be perfect, but it's designed so that the central tendency where you tend to head uh, is better, better, and improvement. So, uh, you know, very, very interesting times. I share your alarm. I'm just not sure it's new to the human experience. Yeah. Except in the velocity and uh, the scale of it, it's just tremendous. There's a book. There's a book I have. I've read pieces of it. I haven't gotten through it. It's called, I think, Fantasyland. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it talks yeah. about this has been this has been going on for hundreds of years. The, the, you know what's disturbing to me is is that you you say that people outside of America that are trying to disrupt the American way are flooding in all sorts of fake news. Right? We saw that in 2016. We 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 knew it was going on in 2018 and 2020. We don't know how much effect it votes, but we'll, we probably will never know that. Then to me, it's just alarming that inside our country, it's like we're picking up that baton and we're running with it, you mm -hmm. know, instead of us coming together and saying, well, just so you know, this is fake. And it just, it, it goes back to my point earlier that, you know, like you said, there's no backroom dealing anymore. Like, and you have our, and the politi and politicians, literally the, the, the day that you become a congressman is the day you, you start again to raise money for your campaign two years later. It's it's obviously a, a, a flawed system, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I could talk about that for a long period of time. Yeah, no, but 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 I will say one of the things that I was really encouraged by is the ability of people who have chosen government service as a career, whether it's foreign service or civil service, their ability to get things done in an environment of tremendous adversity. The fact that you don't have a budget sometimes until well in the year, the fact that you don't know if you, your budget this year uh, will be the same as next, you know, next year's will have the same level of funding for you want to do. So the degrees of difficulty in the governance that surrounds the people who actually operate the State Department and other agencies is, is off the charts high. It's hard. But what they actually managed to get done, and we saw this in COVID, uh, is incredible. And the people who work in, in those functions, by and large, are more purpose-driven than any place I've ever worked. And I've worked in fantastic companies with, in, with incredible cultures, Johnson & Johnson with mm -hmm. Credo, you know, informing everything that people do. Uh, but I would say the State Department and the current people brought it to uh, another level. And their willingness to dedicate their careers to making things work for not a lot of money, right? Uh, but for a lot of purpose and meaning and experience, that's what keeps things going. And that level that is variable at the top is hard to deal with, but they, they surmount it every single day. And that's what annoys me a lot when people say, somehow see it's a, some, what of a defect 
if someone goes the government route, you know, there's a lot of, there's, I think there's just a lot of people in America that are, they don't know what the government does and they don't know inside each agency, how much hard work goes in and how much work you have to put in and actually how much that really is impacting everybody's lives. Like so much of the good work that gets done inside the government from what I've been told, you don't see. And it's frustrating yeah. because it doesn't matter what side you're on, but to, there should be more of a sense in this country of appreciation of people that work in government, no matter where they're at in their career, because the majority of them, if not almost all of them, seem to be there for the right reasons, especially at the mid-management level and lower, I would say. I wanted to ask you about Pompeo because you mentioned, you mentioned that you know, he, was, he was technically your boss, right? Did boss you have- boss. He was my, I, I reported to the Undersecretary for Operations, Brian Bilotow. Okay. How much interaction did you have with Pompeo? Not, not a lot. I mean, he was focused on uh, negotiations and diplomacy, and Brian Bulatow was uh, essentially the COO of the State Department and, and focused on making every support function, everything that we did from building new embassies to computer systems to procurement to security were all uh, elevated as rapidly as possible because of the focus on investment and because of his alignment to the secretary, if we decided to do something and uh, the undersecretary supported it, it got done as fast as anywhere I've worked. You know, right. it, it, it was a period of just tremendous management alignment and focus on using technology to dramatically improve the way things operate. And, you know, when I arrived, there's a little, little bit of skepticism in the career people, particularly the Foreign Service, well, here's a person who doesn't even know government, never mind, he's not a Foreign Service officer. And there was a history of frustration, hope, and then frustration in the execution of the technology programs there. Uh, but for this period of time, because of the alignment, we were able to win over uh, Foreign Service leadership, ambassadors, assistant secretaries to lend their support and uh, bring together their needs to be able to advance the capabilities. And some of the things that got developed, uh, the Center for Analytics, which was not in IT, but certainly something we supported, went from a very small organization to I'd say a world-class data science function that used predictive analytics to do things like identify where conflicts are likely to break out and really start to move diplomacy at the speed of technology. You know, whereas before I think it had been a very, you know, people and paper intensive set of processes. It still is, but uh, so many things happen much more quickly. Uh, COVID drove us to doing everything online. And before COVID, we never even had as many as 10% of the workforce globally at the Department of State working remotely. And at the height of COVID, we had over 90% and everything worked very well. People got very good at using collaborative technologies like Teams and, and sure. others. Uh, and so, now, after the COVID threat is receding, you still have a core of professionals who know how to use collaboration tools to transcend geography and transcend time zones. So if you want the world's best team working on an issue with China, wherever they are today, you can bring them together on a team site and have them collaborate so you get the very best and brightest and the quickest response possible. Before you would have had to try to organize a team, have a conference call, people be dialing you at two in the morning. And this ability to work globally across areas and time zones is something I think has given a tremendous lift to the department. That was all done by people who are career. I mean, I mm-hmm. was new, the de- principal deputy CIO came from another government agency and my boss and of course the secretary. But, but people actually doing the work, fingers on keyboards, they were the same people that were there when I got there. We, we didn't do anything magical there. They already had that capability. What they needed was decisions. And then once decisions were made, consistent support for the execution. And frankly, you need this in any large organization, a bit of air cover so that they could make decisions, innovate, move quickly without worrying about, you know, does someone have their back? Probably the most important thing that a CIO does in these circumstances, especially under pressure, is convince the people that are doing the work in the organization that you will take all the heat, that it won't get past you. If something doesn't go well one night, you're not going to drag anyone else to the meeting. 
to get beaten up by senior management. You, the CIO or senior leader, are going to be in that conversation and they're free to do what they, they need to do. And guess what? When you do that, people they move quickly, they bring innovation to what they're doing. And then they admit when things didn't go wrong instead of being defensive. And so all the principles of things like agile just get naturally part be part of the culture and operations because the things that prevent it are removed. I had a question about just general culture at the at the State Department because a lot of what was you would hear in reporting is that especially when Tillerson had started as Secretary of State, that there was this sort of plan to reduce the headcount at state and close out different, uh, I don't know what the right word is, pockets of the department. And I know that seemed to be a concern with a lot of people in terms of what, what it was doing to the culture. Did you find that any of that was was true? Was there a was there a did you ever see at some point culture at the State Department was lacking? Did you feel like personnel was being cut, was being cut unnecessarily? Was any of that aligned with your experience? I arrived after most of that was through and the secretary came in and said, what we do is important. We're going to invest in people. Um, We're going to create uh, a set of values we all can share and endorse. And we're going to move forward and make the right investments in people, process and technology like you would with any large organization or business. I think because of the things like the hiring freeze, you know, the the department, as so many other government agencies, lost a year or two. And because the hiring process is so long, you have to get a security clearance and there's a lot of filters along the way. When you stop hiring for a period of time, you lose people at every step along the pipeline. And so you lose people who are about to get an offer and they see they're not going to get an offer and they have to get a job. You see people midway in the process thinking, I don't know when this is going to end. And the people in the beginning are trying to make a decision saying, well, I don't know if I'll ever get through. So you lose more than one year of hiring when you freeze like that. So we did see the impact of being shorthanded. I didn't run into any groups that didn't have more important work to do than they could possibly get done with the resources they had, which is why I think there was such an openness to investing in better technology to allow the people who were there to be more efficient. I didn't find you know, any pockets of bureaucracy that weren't focused on mission. I just, I just didn't see it. There may have been some there, but it certainly wasn't apparent to me. And one of the things that's so much fun about the CIO job and, and why, you know, the, the way I was in college where I wanted to study everything is relevant to my job now is the CIO has an excuse to poke into any Thing an organization does because systems are supporting it in some way or another. You want to know how budgets are built? You can look into your planning systems. You want to know how things get to embassies? You can look into supply chain. You want to know how decisions are made? You can look into data and analytics. There's not a single thing that anyone does in any organization that isn't powered by technology. And so if you have the broadest possible interest and passion for what your organization does, that's a good, that's a good starting point for a CIO. Because the first thing you have to do is care about the purpose of your organization. And you mentioned, you know, rapidly aligning to the business strategy and business mission. That's part of it, is if you're a technologist who happens to be in an organization, and that just happens to be where you get a job, you don't particularly care about the purpose, you're going to be very limited in what you do. If you're a business person or a diplomat or, you know, anyone else serving a purpose, and you want to use technology to serve that purpose, then you're going to have a much easier time connecting with leadership and getting your organization aligned. One of the biggest myths that I think is largely going away, but when I started and moved into IT is that, oh, you people just want to do technical things. You don't care about business purpose. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is a very disappointing day for a technologist when he or she builds something and it's just great technology, but it doesn't get used. It doesn't create value. That's sure. not, oh, well, at least I got to do something fun technically. That is, that is a huge disappointment. And on the other hand, if you can build something that improves patient care or improves the ability uh, when there's a wildfire in California to get insurance claims settled more quickly, get people back on their feet, on their feet. if you do that and create some societal good with your systems, that's the biggest motivation. And that's why these people are in these organizations and not working for a technology organization, uh, which is always an option. So I think, you know, that sense of purpose behind what we do helps align all the different functions more or less. So I don't want to say it's perfect, 
but but boy, it, I, I saw an organization that was focused on executing the strategies for the United States on behalf of citizens. I saw an organization that in every conversation about money was concerned about spending taxpayer dollars appropriately. Is it easy to do? No. Just the oversight alone from every congressional committee and other function creates enormous overhead just reporting out and, and dealing with that. But that's a, that's a governance function. When you get to the meat of the work that's done at the State Department and other agencies, it's, it's good stuff. And it's comforting to hear that because multiple people who I've spoken to inside the federal government, either were ran agencies or worked in agencies, have pretty much said the same thing, that they didn't yeah. come across any, you know, there was no politics. They never saw anything other than focus on the mission, which is great to hear. I wanted to ask you how the role of state CIO came about, because I noticed on your resume that you are a little bit different than from a lot of the other private sector CIOs that I've come across, meaning that you lasted longer at your roles. I notice, especially when it comes to the CIO, and I would say a couple of other C-level job functions, whether it be marketing and security, chief information security officers, and I'm generalizing here, but getting past the two-year mark is like a big deal. I notice continuously in the thousands of people that we work with online, come in and out of our events, who we talk to, they're not there for long periods of time. You were there at a lot of your companies for long periods of time, which I think is something I wanted to note on the podcast, because it obviously says a lot about you and how good you were at what you were doing because you lasted that long. But I wanted to just dig deep into how the state CIO role came about. One is I'm curious is, did you ever have any interest in going into public service? And two is when you were at Johnson & Johnson, how, how did this come about essentially? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And yes, I was interested in government service, but or service of any kind, but being you know too young for the Vietnam War by a good bit. And uh, you know, I sort of fell in that, that 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 generation that didn't serve in the military in the same way. And uh, I've had relatives that have served in the federal government, people that I admire greatly. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna get to do a lot in my career, but I'm never gonna get a chance to serve my country in that possible way. And then uh, I was getting closer to the seven year mark at J&J and seven years is a long time to do that job as you can imagine. Yeah, it's like dog years. It's like dog years. So I was there half a century. So uh, my immediate boss, Sandy Peterson had retired and I think she left in uh, October of 2018. And in November, I got a call. Would I be interested in talking to the State Department? Of it, but being a who, who called you? It, it was a, a, a search group under uh, the direction of the undersecretary. He wasn't. He wasn't. A, a, he wasn't approved by the Senate yet. But he was acting. He was helping the department get staff. And. You know, it being a very small world, the secretary, uh, the counselor, and my boss, the undersecretary, all graduated from the same class at West Point, right? Pompeo was number one, and they were all in the top top 10%. And secretary went and got a Harvard Law degree, those who got Harvard Business degree. So they were, you know, very, very bright uh, people. And they were looking around for models for decentralized, multi business unit, global companies that had been successful in creating a culture that persisted and successful in execution, one component of which is technology strategy. So I didn't know it at the time, but the counselor had visited the CEO of J&J to talk about the J&J credo and the history and how did he think about keeping very different businesses aligned on values and principles, but give them the freedom to execute so you didn't burden the consumer business with the, the operational orientation of a pharmaceutical company. So they knew a lot about J&J. I might have even ridden in the elevator with the counselor because he came to headquarters a number of times uh, and I didn't know it at the time. So they knew about J&J and somehow found out that, you know, I'd been there for a few years and just made the phone call. And the, the person uh, who was actually doing the outreach said, uh, if you say you're interested, Brian, the undersecretary, will probably call you today or tomorrow because they're moving quickly. And so I said, yeah, I'm interested. And he called me the next morning. Was someone in that role already? Uh, there was an acting CIO, a very good Foreign Service career officer, Karen Mama, 
who did a fantastic job as an acting CIO, but she was re- getting close to retirement, so she wasn't going to take the overall CIO. So it, it wasn't, it didn't have the awkwardness of a full-time person who was going to be displaced, which can create all sorts of tough issues within an organization for the people who support them. So it, it was essentially an open, an open position. So I said, sure. And then uh, I came down during the week of Thanksgiving, met with the undersecretary, the secretary, the counselor, and some other very so senior you met, people. You met with you met with Pompeo then. I did. He gave me he gave me twenty minutes, which is an eternity. Uh, was this was this at the State Department or another yes, location? State Department in the secretary's office in the reception room. Probably uh, very probably impressive. Very impressive. But, you know, he was quick to point out to me when I made a comment about how nice it was. None of that uh, seventh floor was funded by taxpayer dollars. It was done a number of years ago through citizen contributions. So no, 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 our tax dollars paid for, you know, these environments. But it, it, his intensity, his clarity of thinking, his focus on the long term, because uh, he knew a lot of what we'd be doing, the value would be realized in, in subsequent administrations, it would be they Republican or Democrat. And so that degree of alignment, the commitment, the willingness to give me time out of his day was very impressive. And I would have gone just to meet the sitting Secretary of State. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's... Yeah, of course. (laughs) By itself was. And so uh, at the end of the day, Brian said, we're looking, you know, likely to make you an offer. So I need to think about whether you really want to do this or not. And the next day I sent him a note saying, I absolutely want to do this. Let me know. And they put out a fast track approval and I showed up in March of 2019 uh, with my necessary clearances and, and everything else. And meanwhile, I had been prepped with anything that was non-classified, public domain stuff to get me up to speed. So when I started on day one, I already knew all the players. I knew what we were trying to do. I knew what the challenges were. And I've never had such a good head start. And I attribute a lot of that to the acting CIO, Karen Momo, because she just egoless and you know back to the point about career people she was focused on can this new person help the state department not on what does this mean to me what does it look like to me so she went all in uh on supporting my uh, great it it was fabulous i've never had such a thorough onboarding experience i've never felt like i was hitting the ground running to the degree which i did at the state department were you anticipating that after Joe Biden won the election that you potentially would be staying on or be what would be called like a holdover? Or did you want to leave? How did the, how did the exit work? I made it clear that I would be happy to help bridge administrations and make sure that the work that we established continued, especially if they didn't have somebody uh, right away. But in fact, it turns out they had someone lined up, deep experience. He, he reached out to me after January 20th, which I thought was a very classy thing to do, to touch base. Keith Jones, very bright, very articulate, very experienced. And so, you know, they, uh, they're they a new administration. They want people who are aligned to their way of thinking. So, yeah, I, I made the offer to stay over for at least a period of time, but it turns out they really didn't need me to do that. Got it. I got a couple questions because I, you, you've been very, I would say maybe we'll call them rapid fire questions because you've been very ger- generous with your time, Stuart. You're uh, coming back to Rhode Island tomorrow. So in terms of private sector versus public sector, what would you say is the big difference in the experience you had working for the State Department, which is obviously public sector, and then working for all the private sector companies? What, what were the pros to each? What, were, what, were, what would be cons to each? So I I would say there's a lot of similarities in that, whether you're an employee at the State Department or you're at Johnson & Johnson or CVS or Liberty Mutual or Merck, by and large, people are there because they believe in the purpose. And so that's a tremendous similarity. And each one had its own strengths. You know, pharmaceutical companies take a very long-term view. They're willing to invest billions of dollars to open sometime in the next five to 10 years, one of those investments treats cancer, you know, et cetera. So very science-based uh, organizations. Um, I would say, you know, the, the thing that makes public sector work so hard is the constraints. So if I was at Johnson & Johnson and there was someone running a call center, a customer care or order management function, 
and I went to them, which I did, and said, you know, I think we can invest in automation, improve system performance, and reduce cycle time and cost for you right away. And let's just say we can reduce their cost by 10 million and then put $2 million into IT. That's a great story. And you can do that every day, all day long, when you show that you have that kind of payback. And the CFO supports you. It's just tremendous. In government, you have things called the color of money. Money is not fungible in the U.S. government. So if money is procured to run uh, supply chain and distribution of materials to embassies around the world, it's for that purpose. And technology is separate. So you can't go to the people who are running supply chain and say, hey, you know, you're spending $50 million a year, give me a couple million of that and I'll save you 10 million because you can't move money from one category to another. There was a case a few years ago where there was an electronic medical record system and one of the branches was the military was trying to implement. And the oversight bodies decided that the money they were using was not the right color of money for an EHR system. So they stopped it, threw it away. Tremendous waste. I understand there's a need for controls, but think about that, that if you're in the federal government, you can't go to a function as an IT leader and say, I'll save you, you know, five million if you give me a million. You can't do that. Now you can go to the funding agencies and say, all right, we're talking about 2023 now. If you fund this program, I'll invest it and down the road, uh, we'll reduce the cost of operations in the State Department. Lots of things can happen between now and 2023, but you have to wait. You cannot move money around without violating the law. One of my first experiences that that, uh, really struck me, we were trying to do something uh, with our budget in the State Department, and I knew it was going to be a little complicated, so I used an expression I'd used in business. I said, well, I hope it doesn't take an act of Congress to make this change. <laughs> and one of the people said, sir, everything we do is an act of Congress. And I thought, all right. So it does take an act of Congress to move things around. And people try. It's not, you know, the congressional committee members, they're trying to do the right thing. But the number of moving parts and the constraints on what you can do with an operating budget are at a level that you never see in a, in a, in a company. So that, that to me was the biggest difference, the degree of difficulty in being agile in the government because of the structural constraints, not because of the people, because the structural constraints was a, was a big difference. We, we had not too long ago, the former secretary of the VA, David Shulkin on, and he said, oh, yes. his, yeah, he, he said his strategy was, different than the normal strategy in DC, which is people try to get a lot of small stuff done and then nothing gets done. He said he always went big. He seemed to be able to get bigger stuff done faster than he could a lot of different small small objectives, which I thought was interesting. So I, I wanted to ask you, Stuart, just in relation to cyber, what, what, the, what does the United States need to do in regards to cyber to put us in the best possible position to protect ourselves? And so anyone who's reading, reading the headlines knows that we've, we've got to accelerate our progress in this area. And I would say over the past 10 years or so, we've made a lot of improvements in point solutions in uh, our cybersecurity posture, whether it's identity management or monitoring, whatever, but they're point solutions. And I I was reading an assessment of a company the other day, and I think they had over 300 cybersecurity products running in their environment. Who can manage a comprehensive approach to cybersecurity with 300 products? So I think what we're going to need to see in the, the next few years is, is dramatically accelerated progress in things like zero trust networks, where we're using the right tools to monitor literally every packet that flows through critical networks and adopt a complete white hat strategy. You know, we talk about two-factor authentication. It's a big improvement over one factor. We're going to need N-factor authentication. We're going to need a comprehensive view that if you're a diplomat or you're a business person and you're getting on a sensitive discussion, not necessarily classified, but just sensitive, and you're on your iPad, well, we know if you're in Paris and you're supposed to be in Paris, we know, you know the IP addresses of the hotel, we know who you are, we know who you interact with. We need to move to a holistic and comprehensive view of activity within our technology environments to better detect anomalous activity. So the things like 
a piece of code embedded in the infrastructure that's beaconing out, that should be a red flag. You should know that, well, wait a minute, that type of messaging doesn't usually come from that source and certainly doesn't go to these sources external to our network. But you can only do that if you have a holistic view of all the activity on your network. So we're going to have to get much better at creating different tiers, creating segments, but under a holistic view of cybersecurity so that it's impossible to exploit a crack in the cybersecurity posture, to take one of those 300 products and somehow infiltrate it and get away with it because it's not connected rigorously to everything else. So networks at the core, deep packet inspection at scale, deep understanding of activity on your networks and rapid autonomic responses to uh, strange activity. So if something's coming over and there, you know, someone from a, a city you don't expect is interacting with people you don't expect to, but they have a legitimate login ID that you immediately cross the threshold, you shut it off. And then you get an angry call from an ambassador whose trip just wasn't on the calendar. That's better to get an angry call and fix it than to be vulnerable. So we, we have to shift our culture to the expectations. If I'm doing something unusual, I, I might be shut out from getting access to the network. And I'm happy to see that because protecting either the intellectual property of a Johnson & Johnson or you know, the discussions in progress at a government agency are too important to leave at risk. And, and that's the progress I think we need to make in the short term. Absolutely. The next war is going to be one with, what do they say, chips, not ships. The final thing I, I just wanted to ask for our listeners is just to let them know what you're doing now, what you're hoping to, to get stuck into for the next few years and um, give them an idea kind of what's, what's getting you up every morning. Yeah, well, I've, I've had the world's greatest CIO job, so I'm not going to do a full-time CIO job, but I think you can tell from our conversation, I, I have an endless amount of energy in helping organizations better connect their IT efforts to their strategies, business efforts, continuous improvement. And, th and that, despite the fact that, you know, 30 years ago, I thought we'd solve the problem of aligning business and IT, yeah. it remains single big, biggest weakness in technology. Our capabilities are phenomenal. Uh, our execution and connection to the business is uneven. And the fact that, you know, if you talk to economists and they say, despite tremendous investment in technology, the productivity at the you know, GDP level isn't where you'd expect it to be. It's be. I think it's because you're not getting that alignment. So I'm helping a couple of companies by serving on their boards to bring advanced analytics uh, more broadly. I'm on the board of our studio, which is uh, a great uh, data analytics platform. I'm on the board of another company that's using a tremendous data set of oncology data to come up with better treatment patterns. And I'm serving as a, uh, a senior advisor to McKinsey to help bring my oh, cool. to their clients, uh, you know, early days on that. But organizations like McKinsey, because they're having conversations at the most senior level and levels along the way down, have the best opportunity to connect all the dots to get IT sure. and help the CIO plug into business purpose. You mentioned earlier that you know, I've served longer than average as a CIO, and, and I think that's statistically true. But if I have, one of the reasons is my entire purpose of being there is to advance the strategy of the company. And one of the questions that I love to get that to me is a signal that we're in a good place in IT is when the CFO says, are you sure we can't spend more money in IT? Yeah. <laughs> and, and people laugh when they hear that, but if the CFO sees that we're getting a two-to-one return and believes it for our IT investment, what CFO isn't going to want to ante up as many dollars as possible to get $2 for every Absolutely. dollar? It's the fact they don't believe it, they don't see it, is the reason there's friction with IT spend in the CFO. So um, I'm having a lot of fun helping organizations at that level and then I don't have to do annual budgets. I don't have to do succession planning and those kinds of things. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's 100 percent fun. Put in the time and purpose driven, uh, and I'm I'm pretty excited about this stage. Well, good for you. 
uh, well-deserved. Uh, Stuart, I wanted to thank you for joining us. I had a fabulous time talking to you. I hope you'll come back on the podcast again. And best of luck getting to Rhode Island. And I'm looking forward to your keynote in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Alex. I had a great time and I'd be happy to chat anytime. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to the Millennium Live podcast. New episodes every Monday. If you have interest in participating in a discussion like this one, feel free to reach out to us. Email info at mill-all.com.